eat less often question everything. And that includes antiquated dogma. And so I just believe that we need to get back to more ancestral health perspectives and and strategies to um, improve longevity. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, have I got a treat for you. So I have brought Cynthia Thurlow on to this podcast to talk about intermittent fasting. And then you'll see in the back half of this conversation, we really dive into the nuances about women and fasting. So if you're not familiar with Cynthia Thurlow, she has a very famous TED Talk on intermittent fasting. I highly recommend you go to YouTube and you check it out. And she really is a specialist in intermittent fasting that is really now quite vocal about how women should be doing intermittent fasting. So you can only imagine how much I enjoyed this conversation. So what was really interesting is that we dove into how do you make that change from standard American diet to intermittent fasting? What do you need to do? What are those steps? And what are some of the hurdles that people in general are finding? Then we go into women and fasting and what I wanted to do with her because the two of us have looked at so much research on fasting. We've looked at hormones. I just wanted to geek out with her about what she thought at different times of our cycle, what foods we needed to focus on, what fasts we needed to focus on, and how we could help women in general. So if you're not familiar with Cynthia's work, go check her out on Instagram. She's got a new YouTube channel that she's launching. Definitely go look at her TED Talk. And women that have been following me for some time and listening to me talk about the nuance around what we need to do with fasting, you're going to love this conversation because you're bringing together two incredible minds that are passionate about women doing fasting differently. And this was such a joy for me, and I'm so excited to share it with you. Hey, Resetters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the Academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My Academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. 
and my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you, and I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. I feel like the thing that keeps me up at night is truly how sick the world is. And I was putting together some notes for a YouTube video the other day, and it was on chronic disease. And when you look at the statistics on chronic disease right now, it's like one out of three people worldwide have two or more chronic diseases. 60% of Americans have one or more and 90% of our healthcare costs are on chronic disease. And then I come over here and I look at fasting and I'm like, this is ridiculous. If all we did is get people fasting, we could end chronic disease. So I want to start the conversation there. How do we take somebody who's in the Western standard American diet and we get them intermittent fasting? What, how do we speak to them? What's the first step that they make? Yeah. And that's a great question. You know, if you look at like 88% of Americans are now metabolically unhealthy. So that means like 12% of us are metabolically healthy, which is totally unacceptable. And I think we really have to start with encouraging people not to snack because the not encouraging people to snack will move to people, people being forced to restructure their macros. Cause you can't just have a croissant for breakfast and a piece of pizza for lunch. You're going to have to change your diet. So I think in many ways, removing the snacking and just saying, there is no more snacking. You're not a two-year-old. You're not a five-year-old. You're not a teenager who has crazy hormones and plays sports and, you know, needs to eat constantly. You're a grown-ass adult. And part of getting really tough and being really transparent is saying, listen, we got it all wrong. Like everything I learned during my medical training is completely wrong as it pertains to meal frequency how we are supposed to be eating and what we should be focusing on. We should all be focusing on protein with some healthy fats and lowering our carbohydrate intake. And I think removing the fats and restructuring macros are two really important pieces. I think the other thing is really encouraging people and thinking strategically about educating healthcare providers and saying, listen, if your patient does nothing else, but eat less frequently they are going to get improvement in all these metabolic markers. In cardiology, I worked in cardiology for 16 years as an MP. I got tired of writing prescriptions and I got frustrated because we were not given the tools slash time to be able to talk to our patients about the things that matter most. We've conditioned our patient population to ask for pills instead of doing the work. So I I think it really starts from the point of if someone's on a standard American diet and they're couch potato, the most important thing they can do right away is to remove their snacks because they will be forced to restructure their meals. Like I almost feel like it's like rip the bandaid off, get real. Um, I think the other piece that's really important is getting very honest with people about 
uh, a lot of these liquid calories that people are consuming, they think Diet Coke is benign. They think their Frappuccino is benign. And I'm like, okay, well, the Frappuccino is dessert in a, in a liquid form. And your, your Diet Coke is destroying your healthy gut microbiome. And so, you know, it's like, let's try to find alternatives. But I think it all starts with food and it all starts with this nonsense. As I know you preach, no one should be snacking. You're yeah. a grown ass adult and no one should be snacking. And that's a hard truth. I think we, we have unfortunately been, you know, we've been told that uh, meal frequency is not an issue that we want to stoke our metabolism. And both you and I know that the more frequently you eat and drink these sugary, but sweetened beverages, the more frequently you're secreting insulin, which is going to, you know, put a complete, you know, kibosh on your fat burning potential. Yep. And so, you know, just understanding the basics, but people, you know, on that readiness to change scale, they have to be in a position, like maybe they've gotten a mm -hmm. diagnosis of diabetes. Maybe they uh, have a loved one who got a heart, had a heart attack. Maybe mm -hmm. they're nearing the age that a parent got very sick or passed away. So I almost feel like there, they, there has to be some pain point oftentimes to get them motivated enough to make those changes. But I am a believer that if we can get more healthcare professionals uh, embracing the, the intermittent fasting concept, it will make the world a much better place. And, and unfortunately, Great. as I'm sure you see as well, there are a lot of healthcare providers that are, they themselves are very unhealthy and it's hard to take diet and nutrition advice from someone who is metabolically unhealthy themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I used to laugh, there was an emergency room that I worked out in Baltimore years ago. And the joke at this time, it tells you how long ago this was, uh, physicians could still smoke on property. And so the cardiovascular surgeons would sit outside, have their fried chicken and smoke. And I used Crazy. to say to them, like, what type of example are you setting for your patients? You're telling them not to smoke and then they see you smoking. So yeah. we really do need to be an example to our patients for sure. So I'm laughing because I think what we're going to do when this episode comes out, we're going to make a little square that says you're a grown ass adult. Stop snacking. And we'll quote you on it, Cynthia. We'll make that. It's, it's, you know, it's really true. Here's what I hear in everything that you're saying is that if I have a diagnosis, then my motivation to push through the pain of not set snacking will be higher. But what do we do with those people in the middle where, you know, the motivation isn't as high and I, maybe I'm just losing some energy. I don't have the brain function I used to have. Maybe I just want to lose some weight. Are there tricks we can give those people for when they take the snacks out and now they're hungry? How do we help those people? I, I think that it's meeting people where they are. It's finding what are they willing to compromise on? Some people might be willing to take their, for example, they may be willing to swap out their sugar sweetened soda for uh, a non a non-sugar option. They may be willing, and I think you just capitalize on what one change mm. can you do today? Maybe it's not snacking after mealtimes. Maybe it's having a salad with their lunch with a piece of protein. I mean, trying to really meet mm. them where they are, because I find that when people aren't quite as motivated, I'll say, let's pick one thing. Like, and it's always with their input because I, I could give them a hundred options and then they're just overwhelmed. So, so, you know, I'll give them five or six options. What one of these sounds the most appealing? And I usually go with that. And it's almost like peeling an onion. You get an onion layer back and they feel so much better. They're like, okay, now I'm willing to do the next thing yep. and the next thing and the next thing. And I think more often than not, 
even if people are not willing to change their diet, just eating less frequently, they feel so much better. All of a sudden they're not bloated. Their digestion's improved. They don't need their reflux medication. Right. They're sleeping without symptoms. So they see the changes. Yes. Yeah. So that, that makes it big. Okay. So in the meals, so they take snacks out now, mm -hmm. are they eating three meals a day? And if so, is there, are there foods that they can lean into that mm -hmm. will make like the next day easier and then the next yeah. day easier? Yeah. I, I think animal-based protein is going to be what I'm going to recommend. Um, I know that there are probably some plant-based individuals listening, but we know that that is the most satiating macronutrient. We want to have sufficient amounts of protein. And I tend to be someone that will say to, to clients, like, have that piece of salmon because you've got your healthy fats right in the salmon. That is going to be much more satiating than a dry chicken breast. You're probably going to feel a whole lot more satisfied. So really leaning into making sure that you're hitting those protein macros and not to be afraid of protein. Unfortunately, yeah. I think there are people who have been conditioned to believe that, you know, I don't want to eat more protein because I'll be too full. Well, no, generally speaking, it's the most satiating macronutrient and it's very easy for people to overdo it with healthy fats. So you know, the, the cheese and nuts brigade, like that is, that is like the bane of my existence, trying to encourage people. Yes. Healthy fats are good, but you can overdo it on the healthy fat. So really encouraging people to have proper portions. And that could look different for each one of us, proper portions mm -hmm. of protein. So it'll be fully satiated. And when they're hitting those protein thresholds, they're not going to be hungry between their meals. Right. Uh, and that's something that I think for a lot of people is surprising. They've been so carb dense, you know, they've been focusing on rice and pasta. And I always say, listen, protein, healthy fats first. And then, you know, the carbs should really come from non-starchy options. Yeah. It's not to suggest I'm anti-carb, but if we know 88% of the population is metabolically unstable, we all need to be eating less carbohydrates. Yes. And that's the unfortunate yeah. truth. Yeah. Uh, and it's not to suggest I don't enjoy berries on occasion, or I don't have spaghetti squash or a root vegetable, but my portions are small and I don't do that every day. And I, I yeah. think that for anyone that's listening saying, okay, that sounds reasonable. I can have a fattier cut of meat. That's going to give me to, you know, give me a, a great bang for the buck, if you will, or a piece of fatty fish. And I think when people start making those cumulative changes, it's the domino effect. Okay. Now, are there people who struggle to make any changes? Yes. And I think a lot of that involves, uh, you know, really doing some soul searching, really thinking about what are they ready for? What, mm -hmm. what are they capable of making a change with? And it might actually not start with the meal frequency mm -hmm. and the food piece. It may be that they're going to go to bed earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, I know you talk very, uh, very openly as I do about the, the value of high quality sleep, the value of moving your body every day, connection to nature. It's like, okay, let's, let's come at from a different angle. Like what is reasonable and feasible for you right now, especially as people are starting to return to work again, what, what are you capable of doing? And let's yeah. really focus on, you know, the positives, like what can we do right now? It's never, I always say like, let's reframe when people say they can't do something. I'm like, okay, what can we do? Because yeah. there's always something we can do. It's just, it's a choice. I think also, do you find that people, the way we're living right now in the modern world is so out of alignment with how the human body was designed. 
I had an aha a couple of years ago of like, if you just think about the, the telephone, when I was in high school, my sister and I were so excited because we could get a telephone with a really long cord and walk <laughs> around the whole house yeah. with our rotary phone that had this long cord. And now I've got a phone sitting next to me. But so we've had all these advances in technology, but we're living in the same body that our cave ancestors lived in. Yeah but we're treating it drastically different. So do you find that when you get people fasting, you're really reconnecting them to the way that their body was designed to be? So the easier, the more they do these principles, the easier it gets. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I think it's that domino effect that you know, one good decision begets another good decision. Mm, you know, they they that. stop eating with the same meal frequency. They change their macros. They start losing a little bit of weight. That encourages them further. They're more interested in when I say, you know, get outside and get some light exposure in the morning. You know, you want to be thinking about sleep in the morning and not just at night. And they're more receptive to it because they're like, yeah. you know what? That sounds a little crazy, but I'm willing to do that because I feel so much better. And I do agree with you that when we really look at ancestral health patterns, we went to bed when it was dark and we got up when the sun came out and we're now in an existence where we are stimulated 24 seven. You know, it's not like when you and I were growing up and the TV would shut off at one o'clock in the morning and there was no, there was no programming until the morning. Now there it's, it's endless summer. We can, you know, be exposed and bathed in artificial light all day long, Mm, all night long. And it's so completely the antithesis of the way that our bodies are designed to thrive. And I think that's a huge detriment. And just thinking, you know, you're mentioning your phone. I have my phone and my iPad sitting next to me and I'm on, I'm on a computer and just thinking about the cumulative net impact of all this exposure to blue light all day long and what it does to, you know, suppresses melatonin. And for me, I'm on the East coast. So I'm a couple hours. That's right. It's nighttime there almost. Is it dark right now? I feel like I'm just warming up. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing how that works, but really goes against the way that our bodies are designed to thrive. And so I think when we are more aligned with that, it just makes sense. Like the cravings go away. We lose a little bit of weight. We sleep better. We have better interpersonal, personal, you know, skills. We're making a bigger effort to connect with nature. And and these things seem so simplistic, but it's really, that's the basics. That's really what's most important. Not a lot of other noise and flash that goes on in our lives that, you know, really kind of, um, you know, to try to really distracts us from uh, what's truly important. Yeah. Yeah. I was, we also had to wait a whole week before the next episode of something came out. So patience. There was no instant gratification, no no binging on TV shows. I was trying to explain it to my kids. My teenagers were like, what? And I was like, there was no Netflix or Hulu or Amazon prime. You just sucked it up. And that's just the way things were. But I said, I also think that is, uh, you know, to me, it's so highly indicative of you know, a, a time when our lives were a little slower and not in a bad way. You know, there was no email uh, when I was in college and really dating myself. There was no email. We would, uh, I was in a big sorority and we would have a communication pattern. We'd leave notes for people. I'm sure that's not even done anymore. There was no email. I mean, I think about this now. I'm like, it really was a sweet time. Not everything was captured on social yes. media. We probably had a bit more privacy uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. Agreed. So, and before we jump into women and fasting, which we've got to talk about, how long do you think it takes somebody if to go from I'm eating eight times a day, I'm eating before I go to bed, I eat when I wake up, I'm eating standard American diet. Now I'm not snacking. 
Okay. Now I'm changing my proteins. Okay. Now I'm intermittent fasting. Like what does that trajectory look like? Um, I think it can take a couple months. I don't, and I want to be really clear. I think people are accustomed to instantaneous gratification. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they buy the latest protein powder. They buy the latest gizmo that's going to fix them in a week or two. Yeah. Uh, and so having a degree of patience and explaining to them, this is the long game. This is not a quick fix. This is the long game. And unfortunately in our diet focused, obsessed culture, Uh, that can be a little unsettling for people. But I think once they understand that this is a journey, not a race, then they are apt to be much more successful. But you have to set those expectations almost immediately. And I think even more so for women, because I'm sure you have the same scenario. Women come to intermittent fasting because they want to change their body composition. They want to lose weight. When that doesn't happen instantaneously, they're instantly, they want to be mad. They want to be angry. They want to be upset with someone. And I just remind them, I'm like, listen, it's that onion analogy. I hate to use the onion analogy, but it really is that it's peeling back layers. And some people it is going to require more effort and more time to be able to see those kinds of results. And that doesn't mean you're not doing benefits for your body. So I think it's yeah. a constant kind of reframing so that we understand that weight loss, um, weight loss is important, but it's also like all the other things that are happening in our body that maybe we don't see that are probably more important. We we're looking for the exterior validation and really the interior validation of what's going on and the benefits we're doing is really what's most important. Yeah. It feels a little bit like when I listen to women, it's like they've, they've been burned by a boyfriend over and over and over again. They've been burned by a diet over and over again. So if the results not there quick enough, they're quick to make go back into that amygdala brain and be like, Hey, this isn't going to work. So I have you ever seen it? Not just so we can, I'm very curious your thought on this. Have you ever seen fasting not work for somebody? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And and it's usually because of specific reasons. It can be gut health. It can be sleep quality. And and I'm sure you have these women too. Their sleep is terrible. And what do they want to do? They want to, they think if they fast longer and they eat less food and they overexercise, they're going to make that process easier. And so I would say, okay, let's dial back. Let's mm-hmm. figure this out. Right. Um, there are probably 10 things that I can think of. And I'm sure they're the same things that you think about uh, that can hinder someone's ability to lose weight. And it could be as simple as your hormones, which we know weight loss is all about hormones. Yeah, It could be toxins you're exposed to. It could be Uh, you know, you find out your leptin is 20. Well, guess what? If you're insulin resistant and or leptin resistant, that's going to make that more challenging. And maybe your body in response to a toxin exposure, like mold is trying to protect you. And so it's really acknowledging that it might not be as easy as just fasting. You may have to do testing. You may have to work with a specialist. Uh, You may have to change medication. You may have to uh, and do a variety of different things. And I, I tell people all the time, if I, I and mean, I'm sure you're the same way, if someone sat down with me and I talked about the journey of fasting, I would say it's not a straight line. It's like you go one direction and down and up and down and up and down. And that is that I think that's more common than women talk about. Okay. We got to dive into women and fasting because I think that's what everybody's going to want to hear and women need to do it different. Um, Mm -hmm. so now that we've kind of thought about, okay, how do we help somebody get out of the standard American diet? We get them into intermittent fasting. Now, how do we help the women? What do women need to know about fasting that is different than what men need to do? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is just acknowledging that we have a whole lot more hormone flux than they do, you know, up until we, you know, go into menopause and we have 12 months of no longer having cycles. I think it's important for women to really take advantage of periods of time, no pun intended, uh, of the month where they can fast and they can do it effortlessly and they probably have more energy and they probably can do a harder workout and they might be able to push the envelope with their nutrition. And then there are times during our cycle where we have to back off. And intuitively, the thing I find amazing, even this happens with my healthcare professional friends, I'll get a text. Oh my God, I can barely get to 14 hours. I'm like, where are you in your cycle? Oh, I'm supposed to get my cycle tomorrow. I'm like, bingo. Uh, So your body will intuitively let you know when you're doing too much. You know, I always say, you know, the beautiful thing about hormetic stress is that too much of any one thing is not a good thing. So first and foremost, we have to acknowledge where we are in our cycle and, uh, you know, capitalize on where we are. And then, you know, acknowledge that we probably have a week every cycle. If we've got 28 or 30 day cycles that we shouldn't be fasting. That doesn't mean you don't have digestive rest. That doesn't mean that you don't go 12 hours. You know, you go from eating dinner to eating breakfast in the morning, but enjoy that five or seven days. Um, I think that's, you know, the first thing, and I would say, the second thing always kind of pertains, you know, perimenopause is a weird time. Yes, it is. This is a weird time. <laughs> um, I think you and I have both openly talked about how we, you know, at least for me, I hit perimenopause. Like I hit a wall. I was yep. like, I'm a Western medicine trained NP. No one's ever talked to me about what this is. I mean, I remember I looked in the, I was like, I went back and looked through my, cause I'm a dork and I still have some of my medical textbooks. And I was like, there's no mention of perimenopause. It's like you have a cycle and then you stop having a cycle. There's no in between. And I think it's acknowledging that expect the unexpected that, you know, when you go into perimenopause, some people have a breezy time, although let's be honest, that's probably not most people, but all of a sudden you realize what you did before doesn't work for you anymore. You know, the hardcore exercise, the not getting enough sleep, the out of control stress, And so I think it's mother nature's way of forcing us to slow down a little bit, to be a little more introspective. And uh, on so many levels, I think perimenopause is also this time where we're sandwiched between your your kids are a little older, your parents are a little older, you know, you're probably, you know, accelerating if you're, if you're working outside the home, because as moms, we always have at least one, if not two jobs, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot to manage and we just don't, we aren't as resilient with stress. And it's just acknowledging that the better we take care of ourselves in perimenopause, and this is the theme of what I'm trying to say, the better we take care of ourselves in perimenopause, the easier that transition into menopause will be. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of women, and there's a huge, and I'm not anti-wine, let me be clear. I I think having a nice glass of wine is a wonderful thing, but there's this wine culture. And I think on many levels, women start drinking more wine during this period because, on many levels, they're not sleeping as well. They're stressed. They're starting to gain a little bit of weight. They don't understand why they're like, okay, I'm just going to eat less food. I'm going to exercise harder. And I'm not going to go to bed when I need to, because I have to catch up on all the things. And it's a recipe for disaster. I'm not sure that for you with your, you know, with your clients as well, but I tell people I use perimenopause as a barometer for how well someone's taking care of themselves, because if someone's having hot flashes and doesn't sleep every single night and they put on 30 pounds 
and they've got terrible brain fog. I always say, you know, let's think back to what do these hormones do? It's like reverse puberty, but it's almost cruel because you don't know it's coming. Um, You know, we all go through puberty and and we accept that there are all these changes that go on with our bodies, but we're also working towards something. Whereas we're, you know, kind of we've climbed the hill and now we're on the, the backside of the hill. And it's not to suggest that women can't thrive in perimenopause and menopause, but we don't, as healthcare providers, do a good job of educating women about what is to come. And yeah, I think that really does women a huge disservice. Yeah. Somebody, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago uh, speaking and the guy came up to me afterwards and was really adamant about disagreeing with me around HRT and bioidenticals. And I said, for me, I'm just saying for me, I need the barometer of my hormones to know if my lifestyle is working or not. So I prefer to not do HRT and bioidenticals just for me, because Mm -hmm. I would like to use my lifestyle to be able to tell me if I need to course correct or not. Uh, do you, are you finding the same thing since we're on the perimenopause? And, and again, this is not like, I think everybody should do what feels right for them. Right. I do not think HRT or bioidenticals is a free pass to not working on your lifestyle, but I think we all have to figure out our own comfort level and then make sure we don't numb ourselves out by using medications like that. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's an excellent point. And I would be the first person to say, all the hormones in the world are not going to help you if you aren't willing to put in the work about mm-hmm. proper sleep and um, nutrition and eating less often and not over exercising. And for full transparency, and I don't, I haven't talked a lot about this on uh, social media yet, but I think it's important to be fully transparent with your listeners. Uh, two years ago, I got very sick and lost a bunch of weight, um, and that kind of threw me into early menopause. I didn't realize it at the time. Mm but certainly earlier than I had expected. So I haven't had a period since December of 2018. Um, and I was not mentally prepared to go into menopause so early. And initially I was, even though I was doing all the right things, I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do. And then for me personally, some things started to shift. I, I had a DEXA scan done. I was already osteopenic, you know, thin Caucasian woman with a genetic susceptibility. And I already lift and I already eat plenty of protein and I already do weight bear. I mean, I'm doing all the things. And then it was, um, you know, I started having some, for full disclosure, some women are more susceptible to the loss of estrogen in certain parts Mm. of their body. And so that was number two. And then my sleep quality, no matter what Mm. I did, (laughs) was really suffering and it was becoming a problem. Um, So for me, I made the decision to start HRT and, and almost instantly my my sleep improved like 150%. That was the first indication for me that I was kind of on the right path. And then taking estrogen and testosterone, um, I just felt so much better. Like I didn't realize I had had an ache in a knee Mm. from an injury from field hockey, you know, 30 plus years ago, but all of a sudden I felt better, but much to your point, if you don't get the lifestyle piece dialed in, it is going to make it impossible. And what happens for so many women is they start with the hormones. And again, we're not anti-hormone. It's really about what works for you. And you have a conversation with a healthcare provider. But if you start with hormones, typically what happens is you haven't done all the other, like the foundational work. And then what happens is someone comes to me and they're like, I went on, uh, you know, estrogen patch and some progesterone and I gained 20 pounds. 
And I don't doubt that happened. I mean, there, there's clearly, but it also speaks to a hormone imbalance. And it also speaks to the fact that there's, I mean, so much to unpack there that could potentially be happening. But I, I was like, you can't put the cart before the horse. You really have to do the foundational work to yeah. ensure that your body is ready to accept that replacement of hormones. And for every one of us, it might look completely different. Yeah. Um, and I think that's also important. Like, I don't like to see shaming on either side. And I do see some of that. I see shaming by the people taking the hormones, the people not taking the hormones, or I have women that are so terrified to take any hormone, even progesterone, they're terrified. And I'm like, I don't want anyone to be scared. You just need yeah. to be educated. And that's, Agreed. I think Agreed. so much of our role, I think that's what women women are hoping and praying that we're going to be honest and open. And for me, I think the thing I struggled with the most Mindy of all, I was so ashamed of perimenopause. I remember thinking I didn't want to talk about it. I was Mm. so embarrassed. And I was like, why is this happening? I'm a very open, honest, gosh, I'm a healthcare professional. I know for God's sakes, I should be able to talk about these things. And then I felt ashamed to be able to say, I'm no longer getting a menstrual cycle, not because of the age piece, but it just societally, it's like somehow there's this thought process that women of a certain age, uh, you know, the lack of fertility, whatever it is, we don't want to talk about it. And yet Mm -hmm. what that tells me is that we need to be talking about it. Um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and I'll be happy to, you know, tell anyone about the ugly, but really being, uh, in in a environment where women feel like let's do the kumbaya, let's talk about these things so that other women don't feel ashamed. So other women aren't feeling uncomfortable. And maybe it's because I live in such a conservative part of the country. Um, you know, I jokingly say there's a, a lovely woman that I've become friends with, and she is, you know, one of those menopause people that's, you know, doing a great job educating women. And jokingly, she talks a lot about the dry vagina issue. And I jokingly always say, like, I love that you are comfortable talking about the things that even some healthcare professionals don't want to talk yeah. about. And it's the reality when you take hormones away for some people, they're going to have more symptoms than others. But I am happy to say that I'm in a position now where I don't get a hot flash. I sleep better. I feel good. Um, And so therefore, for me at this point in my life, this is working well. But much to your point, um, you have to do the foundational work because if you don't do that first, you are not going to have a good, you know, like long-term result. You just won't. I think it's the same with all hormone. I mean, thyroid, you could say the same thing. You know, we, we have this understanding that medication is going to cure it. And I feel mm-hmm. like one of the, tw- the concepts I've been wanting to bring to the surface is this idea of lifestyle medicine. So we've got, you know, allopathic traditional medicine, we have alternative medicine and we have lifestyle medicine. So if you choose to do HRT, like you said, it's like awesome. And let's still work on our lifestyle medicine and that you compare with anything. And I don't feel like that discussion happens enough, especially for women, because we're the ones that are dealing with so much, so many hormonal problems. And I think, I think it's really important for us to talk about the fact that there is this, I don't want to use the term lack of consensus, but I do feel like there's a lack of consensus uh, in terms of looking at like a traditional allopathic perspective, looking at an alternative perspective. I like to look at it like we just need to marry it all together. You know, the lifestyle medicine piece should be part of preventative health care. Yeah, you know, I was technically trained as a primary care NP, but I never actually practiced as a primary care NP because I was in the hospital dealing with sick as stink people, which I loved at the time. 
But the point is, is that we don't have the opportunities to be able to have these conversations. And yet I feel so grateful. And I know you do as well to be, to have a platform where you can actually, you know, be the voice for people who maybe don't have the ability to, you know, connect with individuals that are going to be able to share um, openly and honestly, because I, I think, unfortunately, the way that the kind of allopathic medical route is going is shorter appointments. You get one problem that we can discuss. Um, your your you know your options are going to be whatever has been done in a randomized double placebo controlled study, and if it falls outside of that, it's not evidence based. It doesn't work, uh, right. which always makes me, <laughs> which kind of right. gets me. Even though I'm I trained at a big research institution, always is a source of irritation for me because I'm like you know, life is messy. It's not convenient. You can have an anecdotal evidence of I've worked with thousands of women. Do I necessarily find a lot of trials that represent women and fasting? No. Does that mean we don't know what we're talking about? Absolutely not. And so, you know, on on many levels, I think we need to get out of our own way. Uh, I think it's so critically important that we be the voice so that, you know, we have opportunities to connect people to good information and, to stop being so fixated on variables that are not realistic. And, and that's, that's a whole other. Right. That's a whole other. Yeah. <laughs> a whole other podcast. Let's talk about literally my new favorite sleeping hack and it's put out by chili pad. So I got to tell you that when I first heard about chili pad, I was a little dubious. I didn't quite understand how making my mattress cold was going to help me sleep better at night. But what I have since learned after trying chili pad out for several months, I've, I've been consistently using it for the past six months, is that two things are happening. One, when you lower your body temperature, you need to get it down five degrees from when you're what it is when you're standing in your room. When you get into the, your sheets and it, you bring your body temperature down by five degrees, it actually helps you go to sleep. It will stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system. So when I get into bed with my chili pad, I can control the temperature of my mattress. And I'll put it down to like 67 get in bed. It's a little cold, but the sheets are warm on top and it, it is enhances my body's and my mind's ability to go to sleep. The second thing that I've noticed with the chili pad is getting up in the morning is easier. So check this out. When you raise the temperature of the bed in the morning, it actually encourages you to get out of bed. So a half hour before my alarm, I will set the chili pad temperature to go up so that everything in the bed is warming up. And as it heats up, it naturally wakes me up in a not in a, a, a intrusive way like an alarm would. It just gently wakes me up and it propels me out of bed. So on my Whoop, which I monitor my sleep all the time on, I am seeing better recovery, deeper sleep, and I'm getting to bed quicker. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm more rested. So Chili Pad, you guys just nailed it. I love this product. I got to tell you, my husband was very dubious when I first said we were going to put this on our bed. And the cool thing about Chili Pad is that both sides are different, have different controls. So your partner can control their side. You can control your side. Everybody gets the temperature that they want. So check out Chili Pad. You can go to their website or you can go to drmindypels.com and find a link there. And if you use resetter code 
20. So that's Resetter 20, R-E-S-E-T-T-E-R 20. They will give you a discount on the chili pad. Amazing product. I it, it has literally been a game changer for me for menopause. So much so that I actually was starting. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man. One of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. Let's do this. So for women who have a cycle, and this would be really fun just for me to do this mm-hmm. with somebody who has looked at the fasting research and looked at women's hormone as um, in depth as I have. I think you may be the only other person on the planet that has looked at this as closely. Let's go through the different phases of a woman's menstrual cycle. And I, and I, cause I really, when I started to understand fasting, I was like, okay, So estrogen, when estrogen comes in, it does really well when we're insulin sensitive. Okay. Mm -hmm. Testosterone. Well, the studies on testosterone, when testosterone comes in, it needs a really, it does well with, with a longer fast in men. We know that, but we don't know this in women. And we know that estrogen needs to be broken down by the gut microbiome. And you start to just look at the whole cycle and see what the needs of women are. So, so let's start through the different phases and kind of break down what are some of the foods, what are some of the fasts, what are some of the considerations we would make? So starting with day one, go for it. What do you think that first section we need to focus on? Yeah. So day one is when you start bleeding. And for some people that could be heavy, some other people, it could be light. And so this is when you can start fasting again. And, And this is the point in your cycle where you have estrogen to, you know, provide this buffering. And so you can do longer fasts. There might be a time that you're going to do a 24 hour fast, maybe one day out of the week, you identify a Thursday is going to be my 24 hour fast day. And maybe the rest of the week you're cycling between 16 or 20 hour fast, depending on what works for you. You're able to go to the gym. You're able to push your workouts. Um, you know, when we have more circulating estrogen, I'm a huge proponent of cruciferous vegetables. I always tell people that, 
Um, you know, Brussels sprouts are your friend, maybe not kale. I think it depends on the individual. I think Dave gave kale clear. a bad, gave, I know, gave I know. Well, it's rap. funny. I, I have a colleague who calls kale killer kale, but just oh, because God. of the oxalate load. And so that I always say, okay, my individuality rules. um, Terry Cochran. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really looking at those cruciferous vegetables, if we know you're, you know, we want to make sure you're having a healthy, productive, uh, bowel movement every day. I always suggest, you know, sometimes we can add in some fresh ground flaxseed if we know that you're metabolizing your estrogen properly. And you alluded to the estrobolum, which is a horrible name. Oh, it's a really horrible talk- name. Yeah. I always say like, I stumble over it. I'd say, I'm like, oh, I call it the estrobolum. I'm like, it's yeah. the estrobolum. And then everybody calls it something different. I'm like, whatever it is, it breaks down yeah. estrogen. Yeah. I said, and so, you know, really focusing in on, you know, liver support, um, you know, I think about beets and dandelion greens and, you know, bitter greens, which I, I always say, depending on the individual, you may or may not tolerate a lot of these, but put them, toss a little bit in a salad and, you know, throw in some beets, um, but really focusing in on helping to package up that extra estrogen that we know is, you know, can recirculate and we don't want that to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, there are two main sites of estrogen detoxification starts in the liver and then ends in the gut. And so if you're not having a bowel movement every day, uh, that is, that's something you need to definitely work on. And so during this follicular phase, when our body is, you know, kind of getting closer to ovulation gives you more flexibility. This is again, the time in your cycle, you may have more energy, uh, you have the ability to, you know, do longer fast, and then you get closer to ovulation really depends on the individual in terms of you're getting these fluctuations of estrogen and progesterone your libido may pick up. You may feel like, you know, you can kind of get away with being a little more sassy. Uh, you may wear something more revealing, you know, wh- whatever type of pheromones are, are being produced in our bodies. You may be more attracted to your partner or your significant other. And then, you know, and, and I'm oversimplifying. And then you kind of ebb and flow into the luteal phase after Wait, ovulation. And this- can we stop at ovulation for yeah. a minute? Cause I, I have yeah. a, per- I have a question on this. Cause I've been thinking about this a lot. So what fascinates me about ovulation is it's really the major time that we get testosterone. And I've thought a lot about this. I actually talked to Carrie Jones about this. I was like, so does that mean, I mean, there can be a mismatch of testosterone in all different types of couples. But when we look at the fasting research, you know, that shows 1300% increase in men that do intermittent fasting, 2000% increase in testosterone. If you do a 24 hour fast, do you think we can look at a study like that and like use it as a tool to say, okay, women, when you're in ovulation, if you want to increase testosterone, that might be a time to go into more of a 24 hour fast. I think that's really interesting. And, and, you know, testosterone is one of these hormones that depending on the individual, certainly if someone is more prone to like PCOS, um, if they've got more circulating testosterone, I mean, it would be interesting to kind of look at the involvement of, you know, insulin resistance, which, you know, can also impact testosterone levels. So yeah, I mean, intrinsically and empirically, I think that seems very reasonable, especially because the whole concept of ovulation, your body really wants to fertilize an egg. Um, so it makes sense that your libidos is, is kind of waxing and waning and your testosterone levels that were up, that would certainly be really interesting. And this is the kind of stuff that drives me crazy is that, um, there's this fear mongering that goes on about menstruating women and how they shouldn't fast. And, and I, I think of a couple of people in particular, which I will remain unnamed during this conversation, but I think it's really important. Like, how do we really know the net impact? Because we are not 
lab animals. Um, and you know, the, the gestational cycle of a rat is very different than a human being. And that's another thing like people say, Oh, but this study, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but like a rat can have a litter of rodents. I don't know. It's, it's like, they have a very short gestational cycle. Mm -hmm. So how can you extrapolate that and say that because this happens in rats that we extrapolate it to humans. So really looking at the research, but I think that there's not enough research being done on women throughout their cycle. And that is to our detriment because we really don't know. We just have people that are surmising and making assumptions or they cherry pick a study and they say, oh, because peptin's impacted and therefore this is bad. Um, and, And that I always find really troubling. And so um, I'm sure your very savvy listeners already know that the bulk of the research has been done on men, lab animals, and menopausal obese females, and kind of in between is everyone yeah. else. Um, you, but I do, do you, I do think that's a great question. Yeah, and do you think that it gets us in the ballpark when we look at a mouse study versus a and a man and a and a male study? Like, do you feel like, well, it's interesting, it gets us in the ballpark. It's not a woman study, but at least, I mean, testosterone is one that I have really analyzed over and over again because I think it's so fascinating that we really get one big blurb of it and then we don't get a lot the rest of. I, I think there's a lot of marriages that might have been might be healed if if they understood that. So, but yeah. then the yeah. male studies are so encouraging. So the way my brain thinks is, well, it gets us in the ballpark. It's not a woman study, but it does help us sort of get an idea of what might be possible. Do you think that that is a truism I, I think, or I would you disagree? I think that's reasonable. But again, like thinking back to the statistic that if 88% of the population is metabolically unhealthy, and I start thinking they're leaning towards insulin resistance, which means they're going to have imbalances between estrogen and testosterone to begin with. It's like, let's think about the 12% of the population that is metabolically healthy. And yes, I do think that that is a great way of reflecting on testosterone. It also explains like when testosterone is high, we feel sexy. We want to have sex. You know, know, it makes complete sense, you know, why that would happen uh, at that point during our menstrual cycle, but also explains why, you know, when that drops rather precipitously, People are, we're kind of like, yeah, whatever. Right. Next month. Yeah. You know, that's why I'm like, I think everybody should like every couple, their partner should have their track, their menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And then you would understand so much about your, your partner. So, but go ahead, continue on. I just, that was just something that I've recently been geeking out on and I'm like, yeah. And it's, you know, I've looked at so much fasting research that mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I got to ask Cynthia this because you've done no. the same. So I think, what, I think that's, that's a great, so, so we, we ovulate or not. Um, and then the, the next transitional phase is into the luteal phase. And, you know, in the beginning, estrogen and progesterone are, are lower, but over the course of the luteal phase, you'll get, um, your highest levels of progesterone and progesterone is the, it's a good hormone. It's meant to mellow us out. You might not feel it's as an motivated. amazing hormone. What do you mean? It's a yeah. good one. It's, <laughs> it's like, I'm. I want it back. I love progesterone. I love progesterone. It makes me fall asleep at night. It's really nice. It um, makes me feel so good. Yeah. No. So progesterone's like our mellow. I always say it's like, I think about my earthy. I have a wonderful aunt who's just chill and relaxed and just so earthy and she's loving and warm. And, and it's just, you know, it's like a big hug. Yeah. When I think about, <laughs> it is. When I think about progesterone, um, it, it's designed to kind of slow us down a little bit. We might feel a little more bloated. We Um, you know, certainly might be in a position and we know as we get closer to menstruation, I think it's between hundred, 150 more calories per day. And so we become progesterone makes us a little more insulin resistant. So 
this is when we have all those cravings and and it I marvel at the human body and how these desires and cravings aren't there just because um, they're they're either related to an un, unmet need or it is really because our body is looking for a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know when I think about increasing carbohydrate intake around the menstrual cycle, I like the whole food carbohydrates. Like I usually say, I'd rather you have a sweet potato or um, or some squash as opposed to going nuts with a lot of grains and a lot of gluten. And unfortunately, yep. what do we gravitate towards? we're really grab like, we'll have like chocolate cake and we want a pie and we want a cookie. And that's just a disaster. You know, we already are a little, we're, we're at that point where we're becoming a little more insulin, you know, insulin resistant. You got to be careful. And that's when people will just say like, I'm bloated and I'm tired and I'm grumpy. And, you know, I have a couple women that I'm working with right now. They'll say, okay, let's, let's try for the five to seven days preceding your menstrual cycle. Let's try something different. And inevitably increasing their, their portion. So let's say they have a little more sweet potato, um, and they put some butter on that sweet potato or some ghee, all of a sudden they're satiated. They feel great. Their sleep improves. Um, they feel a whole lot better, but the bloating can definitely, and because there's this slight anti-diuretic impact of progesterone. So it's not at all uncommon that people can have, not only can they feel bloated, but they can also have like loose stools. Mm -hmm. And ironically, my, my GYM pointed out to me that a lot of times when women have loose stools right before their menstrual cycle, it's actually because of the position of their uterus, which I never knew before. I was like, huh. Um, We're amazing. Yeah. Our bodies are amazing. Yeah. The body is amazing. But this is also when you may want to do yoga and you may want to do walking in nature, you're, you're just not going to feel as motivated to do these hardcore hit exercises or heavy strength training. And it's not in your head. It's not a lack of motivation. I think it's really validating to know that our bodies prime things that way, because in an ideal circumstance that it gets fertilized and now your body is kind of creating this ovum and is getting ready to, you know, um, put you in a position where you're going to have this pregnancy. And so the, the one thing that I find really interesting, and I, I had a woman yesterday, I was looking at her Dutch and I suspected she had PCOS just based on polycystic ovarian syndrome, just based on what she had shared with me about her pregnancies and how she had trouble conceiving. I was like, she probably has a luteal phase defect. And sure enough, um, her progesterone was very low. And so, you know, I think because her androgen levels, her testosterone levels were, were higher than they should have been. And I was explaining to her, I said, you probably have never had someone explain this to you, but when your progesterone levels don't ever get high enough, your body's not in a position where it's going to uh, want to have a healthy pregnancy. I mean, you're going to be in a position where you might just have a, a later period because, you know, you had this minor miscarriage, but you're not even aware of it where your body's just not optimally balanced. And, and I think the big thing when we're t- talking about sex hormones, it's all about balance. You know, it's mm-hmm. not an all or nothing Great. phenomenon. Yeah. Yes. Progesterone predominates in the second half of the menstrual cycle. Yes. Estrogen predominates in the beginning when we're a little more insulin sensitive, we can get away with a whole lot more. And I always feel like Progesterone just reminds us that we have to be grounded and balanced and how yeah. critically important that is. Okay. Um, and not enough is talked about. Like I, I'm sure maybe it was different in your house. My mom was a nurse, but I don't think I ever learned all the nuances of the menstrual cycle no. until I was a whole lot older, like way yep. beyond what I should have known. I, I just kind of, you know, manipulated my, my periods with oral contraceptives because my periods were never regular and, you know, didn't think anything of it until I decided to come off oral contraceptives. And then I was like, oh, I don't think I've ever had a regular cycle in my entire life, um, yeah. but it's endlessly fascinating. What do you, what do you think? Are you finding with women that the more 
a woman fasts, the more she wants to fast, there becomes mm-hmm. like this craving to fast even longer. And, um, do you feel like there's a benefit to women going into three day water fasts and doing those, or do you think women should avoid all that? Uh, well, I think it depends on someone's goals. I think if you're a lean female already at your goal weight and you're cycling, you know, it's, it's the law of diminishing returns. I tend to be, I err a little bit more conservatively and say, if you're, you know, 24 hours or less, I think it's fine. I think when we're doing these really long fasts and you're already lean, I think it can put your body in a state where it's that hormetic stressor. It can be a little bit too much. I think that you really have to think strategically, what are your goals? Are you already lean? And if you're already lean, it makes it a little more challenging to, um, makes things a little more challenging to do those prolonged fasts. But I find that most people do have weight to lose, or they do have body composition changes. And so can they get away with an every other day fast? Can they get away with a two or three day water fast? Yes. Um, you know, I think that when you're perimenopausal transitioning into menopause, I think sometimes that might be the easiest. And yes, I do think women get to a point where they're like, I, I get a lot of like, I'm not hungry to eat. I'm like, okay, that's a problem. You know, you should get hungry at some point you should get hungry. If not, then we we have other things we need to work on. But I do think women can get into a mindset where they're like, if a little bit of fasting works, I want to do more, mm-hmm. a little bit of fasting works. I want to do a whole lot more. And so yeah. I always say like, it's really checking in with yourself. If you're still getting your period and you fast for a long time and your cycles get wonky, it's a sign it's too much. If you no longer have cycles and you're able to sleep through the night and you feel good and your energy is great, great. If you're perimenopausal, it really depends on the individual. And sometimes I think people don't know until they experiment and there's nothing wrong with experimentation. Yeah. Um, I I think it's it's so nuanced with women. That's what I always say is expected. expected. Like I wish I could say, if you're 47 to 52, right. <laughs> or if you're, you know, 46 to 36, then this is what you're going to expect. And it's, you know, we're all our own individuals. And so yeah. it's yeah. like trying to pri- provide parameters. I always say like men and postmenopausal women, it's a little more predictable, but everything yes. else in between, it's like all bets are off. But I do right. find that women can almost get, I don't use the term addicted because that's the wrong terminology, but I think people can get preoccupied and yeah. be in a position where they're excessively focusing on or perseverating over, um, you know, if a little bit of fasting works, then I want to do a lot more fasting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, yeah, there's so many wonderful benefits of fasting, but women need to, to cycle it so much more. And if you're not aware of that, that can be a problem. Uh, one yeah. other thought, and then I, I have a couple questions for you here at the end. What do you think? And this is just purely like a fun, a fun question. Uh, what do you think about men? There's so many men on social media, writing books that are giving fasting advice. Do you mm-hmm. feel like we're, we're women are being left out of the conversation? And, and let me give you the example that I thought of was when Dave wrote his book, I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a great book. He's got lots of biohacks. He's dedicated a chapter to women. And the first thing, and I love Dave, this is not a, you know, Dave, if you're listening, this is not a, not a, not a a criticism, but I feel like women continue to be guided by male doctors, male health influencers. And until you've lived in a woman's body and you've looked at the science, it's very difficult to understand the nuance that women need. Do you feel like we're missing leaders in the fasting world? Yes, I do. And, and I think from the same token that as a woman, 
I can't speak definitively on what it's like for a man to fast. And unfortunately, I feel like there are a lot of emerging or emergent uh, male experts in this space and not as many women. And I don't know if that's because we've, some women have just chosen to focus on other areas uh, in anti-aging or regenerative medicine and and things like that. But I, I do feel like women want to hear from women. Yeah, they want to right. have an understanding of what it's like. And, and I think it's also critically important that you have women that are not 22 yes. talking about fasting, because I will be the first person to say what I did in my twenties and what I did in my thirties is very different yeah. than what I've been doing in my forties. And I would not at 49 be able to speak on what I can now had I not experienced what went on from 37 to 49. And yeah. so Agreed. I think, you know, being middle-aged women, we we've lived long enough to be able to say, Hey, I know what it's like in your twenties and thirties and forties. Yeah. Um, and, and now we're wise. Can... you can just say it. We're really, really wise. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said mature the other day. They were like, I think what you're trying to speak to is mature women. And I said, sure. Yeah, uh, I was thinking you just call me middle-aged. Wait a second. I'm not middle-aged. I know. I know. <laughs> well, but, but think about it this way. If the average individual lives into their eighties. Like when you hit 40, really technically that's great, but that's okay. I mean, there's no, there, there's no judgment in, in that terminology. It's just hard to say, like, I'm not, I'm not like, I don't consider, I consider myself youthful. Um, I consider myself wise. Uh, but I think in many ways it's like, you know, how do you find a a way to describe where we are life-wise without like doing a stamp label? And it's like, uh, you know, here's the stamp and this is what you fit into. This is the bucket you fit into now. But I really agree with you that there there is not enough uh, women uh, leaders talking about fasting. And I think it's not to suggest that there aren't uh, individuals, whether they're uh, biohackers or physicians, et cetera, that are incredibly knowledgeable. And, you know, they might know nuances that I'm unaware of, but I I feel like women need to be leading women when it comes to talking about fasting strategies in many ways, because we, we know what it's like to have a menstrual cycle. We know what it's like to be pregnant. We know what it's like to be postpartum. We know what it's like to be on contraception. We know what it's like to, you know, be middle-aged. Um, and you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really feel that as well. And again, this is, I applaud the men in the fasting arena. I, and I applaud you for standing up and, and teaching women. Like, I just feel like we, you know, we need to shout as loud as we possibly can, because not only are we seeing the tools, but we're living it, the body that is applying the tools. So hundred percent agree. Okay. I got five questions for you. And I think, let me see. I don't think any of, well, one's about fasting. So, okay. The first one, we're starting a book club uh, or not really a club. We're starting a book list of all of our podcast guests. What is the one book, or you can say two books that you feel like really impacted your life and you would recommend everybody read? The Unhealthy Truth by Robin O'Brien changed my life. Mm. Um, that's a book that uh, was incredibly and profoundly impactful, completely changed the trajectory of my career. Uh, I'm actually having an opportunity to bring her on the podcast. So oh, that's, that's really so special. Cool. I was like trying to geek out. I'm like, I'm going to try not to be a gigantic yep. I had that with, uh, I had that with Dr. Libby Weaver and rushing woman syndrome. And when I brought her on, I actually cried and then she cried and I was like, Oh my God, your book (laughs) changed my life. It's awesome. So congrats. Yeah, no, no. I mean, and it just goes to show you the power that a a book can, can embody. I would say most recently, I would say it's a tie between two books, the XX brain by Lisa, Mm. Lisa Moscone 
was incredibly impactful. Uh, I think we all want to think we really understand the net impact of estradiol and progesterone and testosterone on our brain function and neurodegenerative risks and et cetera, et cetera. That book really was impactful. Like as I was reading it, I was sent, I sent a copy to my mom. I sent a copy to my best mm, friend. I was so cool. I was like, you have to read this book. I would say the other book that I've read most recently that I really have been recommending, although it's a little more dense, meaning it, it's, it's a little more scientific um, metabolical by uh, Robert mm. Lustig was excellent. Mm. That's a book you read and you just get mad at the processed food industry. You're like, dang, um, that was a really impactful book. So I would say those three, definitely the top two. Um, the third one is a little bit more dense, but you know, he does a, a like a masterful, a masterful way of just explaining the impact on the sugar industry, the processed food industry and our health and how it's really destroyed it. So very relevant to our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Second question. If you could go back to your 20 year old self and you could give her some advice, what would you tell her? Oh gosh. I would tell her to be patient. I think I was always like, I couldn't, I couldn't wait to finish grad school. I couldn't wait to, you know, be working. I couldn't wait to meet, you know, my husband who I met when I was 30. I think I would just say, mm. be patient. I mean, mm. I, I was fortunate that my, you know, my mom and my dad were um, ahead of their times in terms of they were, my mom was crunchy before there was, that was even a So word. was mine. Yeah. So, you know, we ate organ meats growing up and my oh, mom gosh. ate bread and we had to have vegetables with every meal and how progressive we rarely ate out and we learned how to cook. And so I say all the time, like what a blessing and, you know, strong role of, of family. So my twenties, I, I knew how to cook and I knew how to eat. And I, you know, I was, I was way ahead of the curve that way, but I would just tell myself to be patient. I think I was always felt like I was always rushing to finish something like, you know, check the box, move on to the next thing. And I was like, gosh, savor your twenties, have fun, yeah. do more travel, stop yeah. being so serious. Like, I think I look back, I was like, I was so serious in my twenties. Mm. Well, um, I'm going to tell my daughter this tonight. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. it. She's 21. And I keep saying the same thing. Like you yeah. figure stuff out in your twenties. It's so good. Yeah. It's so, a beautiful thing. Okay. What is, what is, who's somebody that you would just die to interview on your podcast? Hmm. Well, Robin O'Brien would have been top of the list and I, am going to have an opportunity to connect with her. I would say, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I, I can geek out over Katie Couric. I just, Oh, that's funny. I, I think I've been following her on Instagram and she's done such a beautiful job just keeping, um, keeping people abreast of what's going on. You know, when that, there was that condo collapse in Miami and every day she was you know, showcasing someone that had been one of the victims. And I just feel like she really has done a great job navigating a lot of events over the last 18 months. I'll just say that. Um, but I just think she, you know, lately, I think I've been geeking out of her Katie. Curry. Have you, and that have probably, you invited her? Have you, I have not. Oh, I, come I on. Decided, so you got to try yeah. it. <laughs> this is the I decided that, part. you know, yeah, no. And, and it's funny because you would think I would come up with, you know, some world leader or, but I, I just lately, I, I think it's her humanity, her humanitarianism and just her big heart. And so that is really kind of appealed to me. And it's also that kumbaya, you know, we're all middle-aged or beyond women yeah. and we need to be some more supportive of one another. And I think that's so yeah. critically important. So probably Katie Couric, which I'm sure if my husband heard that, he'd probably be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's, hey, this is your dream. This is your dream. Yes. Okay. Fourth question. What's the craziest thing you've ever done for your health? Oh, oh, without question, coffee enemas. 
<laughs> okay, last question. If you had mm-hmm. one message for the world that you could get into everybody's brain and help them see, what would that message be? Eat less often. I know that's probably, you know, trite. No. But if every single one of us ate less often, we would have a much healthier population than we yeah. do right now. And I Amen. think that's, I, I know for both of us, we probably embrace and love the whole concept, but that's really where it starts from. You know, yep. the, one of the best ways you can balance hormones and all the other things that we've kind of alluded to and talked to um, during our discussion that's the platform. That is the sword I will die on. It's just yeah. encouraging people to eat less often. And, and to kind of question, as I always say, I was taught and raised to question everything. And that includes antiquated dogma. And so that flies in the face of everything I trained with. And um, I just believe that we need to get back to more ancestral health perspectives and, and strategies to um, improve longevity for sure. Hey, Resetters, I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for all your wonderful reviews and those of you that have left me comments on iTunes. I just greatly appreciate your thoughtfulness and how much you guys are enjoying these episodes. And it it seems like you're enjoying them as much as I am enjoying doing them. One of the things that I've learned in just interacting with so many people is that we've really lost the art of deep conversation. And for me, the Resetter Podcast stands for having meaningful conversations with people who are thinking about health, about life, about mindset in a way that we may not be getting on social media or in mainstream media. And so I just want to say, give you guys a shout out and just say thank you for participating in this process with me. Because as much as I absolutely love delivering the information to you, I love even more knowing knowing that it's impacting your life. So please let us know if there's anything we can do to make this podcast more customized to you, to make it better. We are now officially in season two, and we are working to bring you the best conversations that health influencers have, that mindset changers can give, and to really deliver you something that you're not able to get anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, as I always say in my YouTube, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply appreciative of you. I am deeply grateful to be on this journey with you and let's get healthy together.